Father. If you've seen God the Son, you've seen God the Father. And in verse 10, Jesus asked Philips, do, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Then in the following verse, Jesus commands the whole group, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. This truth, this statement, then begins sort of a logical sequence of steps. Uh, there are five of them in my account, just as Jesus kind of builds upon his statements with logical steps. And I think if we can walk through each of these steps one by one, we can under, better understand the meaning of this passage. We can understand what God the Father has revealed to us through these words of God the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the first step in Jesus' line of thinking is this. Jesus and God the Father are one. Jesus and God the Father are one. This is the exact terminology found in John 10.30 when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The next, this is step one. Very simple. Jesus and God the Father are, are one. Jesus builds on this and leads to step two, which is this. Since the Father abides in Christ, the Father is at work in Jesus' works. Okay, understand this. In all of Jesus' workings, in all of his miraculous works, God the Father is working. Jesus is working and God the Father is working. Jesus says, the Father abiding in me does his work. So understand, God, God the Father and God the Son are one. And when the Son works, God the Father is working. And this leads to step three. The works themselves are intended to encourage faith. That, what Je that which Jesus did is intended to encourage our faith. His miracles are intended to encourage our faith. This is verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Believe because of the works themselves. So Jesus' works during his earthly, Jesus's works during his earthly ministry, his miracles, in other words, were intended to be observed by the disciples so that their faith would be bolstered. So, so then we could say the goal of Jesus' works was faith. Uh, the works were intended to drive one to believing in Christ. And this is a critical detail here. The goal of the works is belief. So this is where we left off really last week in our looking at this passage. Jesus and God the Father are one. Since the Father abides in Christ, Jesus' works are also the Father's works, and the works themselves are intended to encourage belief. And now we're going to slow down here at step four. And the step four is this. The one who believes will do greater works. The one who believes will do greater works. I'm drawing this directly out of verse 12. Uh, look at it with me in your own Bible. John 14, verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Now, at once, I think we can detect how important these words are. The thought of doing greater works than Jesus is absolutely stunning. Does this mean that we as Christians who believe in Christ should be able to walk on water? 
Should we be able to raise people from the dead? Should we be able to feed 5,000 plus people from one lunchbox? Should we be able to do greater works than Jesus? Well, certainly many have taken this passage to mean exactly that. To give one example, after doing a quick Google search, uh, just consider the infamous health and wealth prosperity false teacher by the name of Creflo Dollar. Perhaps you've heard of him. Great name. But writing about Jesus' references to greater works in this chapter, John 14, Creflo Dollar said this, When you accepted Jesus as your Lord, you were adopted into God's family, and resurrection power was imparted to your spirit. And it's now up to you to draw that power out. Raising the dead, healing the sick, and speaking life to circumstances should come naturally to every believer. But getting to that point doesn't happen overnight or without effort on your part. It will take a serious commitment in order to infuse your spirit with God's word to the point that you become a walking demonstration of Scripture. Constantly meditating and acting on what you believe is the only way to develop the faith necessary to do these greater works. Hearing God's voice and instantly obeying him are the keys to positioning yourself for mighty exploits in the kingdom of God, end quote. But contrary to what Mr. Dollar says here, note that in John 14, there's nothing said about developing a certain level of faith or achieving a certain level of spiritual maturity in hopes of unlocking the potential for such greater works. And really, this type of superficial exegesis with just enough truth blended in lures many to the prosperity gospel which ultimately is a false gospel. And so seeing the abuses of this verse, others have been quick to remove any sense of supernatural, any, any supernatural sense from this verse. Some have argued that greater works simply means more works. We'll, we'll do more works. The disciples would perform more works because there's many of them more than Jesus did. Thus, greater works means numerically more works. But such a meaning is really very highly unlikely here. The Greek word translated greater is used 17 other times in the Gospel of John. And not once does it mean more or numerically greater. It doesn't mean that. And in fact, it rarely, if ever, means that in the Bible. And if Jesus wanted to refer to the works as being numerically greater, just being more, he could have simply said, you will do more works. But he did not say that. There are other words that Jesus could have used to communicate more clearly, if that's what he intended, not greater works. But he said greater works. We can gain a little insight about this phrase, greater works, by considering the only other time we find this exact phrase, greater works. It's in John chapter 5, verse 20. I'll read it to you. It's a very, it's the exact same phrase. There, This is what Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these. In context, here in John chapter 5, greater works refers to the resurrection of the dead. It doesn't refer to more works. It refers to a particular greater kind of work, the resurrection from the dead. 
So when considering the exact meaning of this phrase in John 14, 12, it will not work for us to simply say, well, it just means numerically more works. Greater works means more works. So in the passage that we come to this morning, greater works refers to the works of the disciples that are somehow qualitatively better than Jesus' works. And it almost sounds blasphemous, except, of course, that Jesus himself says it. So does this mean that greater works means greater miraculous works? I think if we look backwards on the last 2,000 years of church history, it sure doesn't seem to be true that the disciples of Jesus Christ have been able to do miraculously greater works than Jesus. I mean, in what sense would the disciples be doing works that are qualitatively better than Jesus' own works? I mean, who has been able to walk on water? And who's been able to turn water into wine? And who's been able to raise a man from the dead after his body is already under decay? The answer to these questions is no one. Not even Creflo Dollar. Not even the apostles themselves. No one could be legitimately said to have done more, greater, supernatural works than Jesus himself. And even even if the apostles, who did do many supernatural works... Even if they had done greater works than Jesus, this passage is referring to all disciples. All disciples. Look at the passage again. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. The the promise is not to the apostles alone. The promise is to anyone who believes in Christ. This is a promise given to any and all disciples of Jesus Christ, every Christian. So again, we ask, well, what does greater works mean? If it does not refer to numerically more works, and if it does not refer to works that are, that are more supernatural or miraculous in nature than Jesus' works, well then what does it mean? That's really the question. And I think the greatest clue to understanding what Jesus' words here mean is the phrase at the end of this verse. Look at the end of verse 12. Because I go to the Father. Because Jesus was returning to the Father, Jesus' disciples would be able to do greater works. So the very basis of, the G- of Jesus' disciples doing greater works was the fact that Jesus was returning to the Father. Therefore, there's something about Jesus' departure to the Father that enables the disciples' greater works. And I think we can gain some clarity on this if we look ahead in Jesus' words later in this same conversation. Look at John 16. In verse 5, John chapter 16, just a couple chapters ahead in verse 5. Look what Jesus says here. He says, And now I'm going to, to him who sent me, and none of, none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Here, Jesus tells his men plainly that it was to their benefit that he was leaving them. Because if Jesus did not go, the helper, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit could not come to them. But Jesus told them, but if I go, I will send him to you. That's verse 8. But if I go, or excuse me, verse 7, I... If I go, I'll send him, and note, to you. 
And, and note just what the Holy Spirit will do in them. Look at, look at verse 8, continuing in the passage. And when he comes, and, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Holy Spirit's going to do when he comes to them. Continuing in verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So once the Holy Spirit has been sent to the, the disciples, the Holy Spirit then begins to convict the world. Uh, again in verse 8, when he, that is the Holy Spirit, comes. The Spirit then begins to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. We ask ourselves, well, how does the Spirit of God begin to convict the world? How, how did he do that? Well, the Holy Spirit brings conviction through preaching, through talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, but through sharing the gospel, through evangelism, through gospel proclamation, the Holy Spirit convicts people. We know that. And so the only way that the world comes under such conviction is through gospel preaching, through us sharing the gospel. That's how the Holy Spirit brings people under conviction. So how can someone come under conviction concerning sin and their need for righteousness and the certainty of coming judgment unless someone has explained to them what God's word has said, has shared Christ with them? The Holy Spirit does this convicting work as we share Christ. He empowers our preaching, in other words, our witnessing. In other words, Jesus was returning to the Father so that he could send the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit could then empower our evangelistic efforts, our ministry. And it was for this reason that it was the disciples' advantage that Jesus leave. Jesus' departure would then free up this work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And this was really like an absolute game changer for the evangelistic efforts of the apostles and for all the early church, and if even for us today. Having the Holy Spirit empowering our sharing of Christ. So Jesus' death, resurrection, and, and ascension were, were really the catalyst that launched a new age in God's redemptive plan. We could call it maybe the age of the spirit or the age of the church. And this was dramatically displayed, of course, at Pentecost. At Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out in power upon the disciples of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus prophesied they would in the early, in the early verses of Acts 1, in verse 8, the Holy Spirit came powerfully upon the gathered disciples, enabling them to be effective witnesses for Christ, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So through his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus really unleashed the Spirit's power upon his disciples to do these evangelistic works to do greater works, to be a more effective witness. So if we put all this together, what are the greater works that the disciples will accomplish? How are they greater than Jesus' own works? Hear me, they are greater because after the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit, the evangelistic witness of the disciples surged with new power, with new energy from the Holy Spirit. The gospel ministry of the disciples became, and still is today for us, even more convincing and more effective 
than Jesus' own evangelistic ministry. I mean, just for a moment, consider how few people actually chose to follow Christ during Jesus' three-year ministry. I mean, Thomas and Philip's questions, even in this chapter, uh, highlight the just lack of clarity that even his own men had about him. And and even even his closest friends were confused, uh, let alone the masses. In John chapter 6, thousands of Jesus' disciples were departing because they considered his words too hard. They're saying, we don't get it. This is too hard for us. They didn't understand. But what happened when Peter preached in Jerusalem at Pentecost after being empowered by the Holy Spirit? Acts 2.37 records the crowd's response. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On that day, nearly 3,000 people were converted, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Tremendous results. Something unlike Jesus' day. In Jesus' time, there was very little results. But now Peter comes in massive awakening, turning to Christ. So once Christ had returned and the Spirit had come, the disciples of Jesus Christ now preached with bold power and, and convincing clarity. They had clarity about all that Jesus was and what he had done and his death and resurrection. It all made sense to them. And they just let it rip in clear preaching of the gospel. So this little phrase in in John 14, 12, because I go to the Father, and then the parallel passage in John 16, really set the parameters on what these greater works refers to. So the works of the disciples would be greater than Christ in terms of clarity and power. Uh, remember that the goal of the, mir- the miracles earlier, step three, was belief. The miracles are, t- are tending to result in belief. That's what Jesus wanted them to do. But now here afterwards, the works of the disciples, the preaching ministry works, are more effective in bringing people to belief than even Christ. This was Christ's promise. Greater in terms of evangelistic clarity and converting power through the supernatural power given by the Holy Spirit. So the early church just turned the world upside down by preaching Christ, seeing people come to saving faith, planning churches. These are the greater works referred to in John 14, 12. And note that this is a promise, again, to all believers. Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. So so Christian, understand that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a faithful, fruitful witness for Jesus Christ. Your preaching of Christ to your coworker will be more evangelistically effective than Christ's own preaching ministry. I think this truth should just fire us up for evangelism. If we we understand this rightly, we should be just excited to proclaim Christ. Know that the Holy Spirit is empowering our efforts. It should make us excited for for missions. The Holy Spirit empowers our our evangelism. This is the greater works. And, And this really provides the context for the next two verses. And I'll just say that this passage is difficult. So, So just hang with me. Greater works, that's the first difficulty, but there's more coming. 
Uh, let's go to the, I'll say the next step here. We're moving to the fourth step in Jesus' flow of thought in John 14. So, the, so four, step four was this. The one who believes will do greater evangelistic works, we could say. And these greater works, catch this, come about as a result of prayer. That's the fifth step. The greater works, fifth step, are a result of prayer. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Unfortunately, our, our English versions don't translate the first Greek word of the sentence. In the original, the sentence begins with the word and. And this is not abnormal for it to be untranslated. In English, we, we often consider it bad form to put and at the beginning of a sentence. So it was left out here. But I wish they would have left it in. Because that opening and in verse 13 really ties this verse closely into verse 12. In verse 13, Jesus is continuing and furthering his thought, but now he shifts to the topic of prayer. Whatever you ask in my name. In verse 13, the request seems to be made to God the Father. Whatever you ask God the Father in my name, that I'll give to you. And that, of course, is the normal pattern of prayer that we find in Scripture, praying to God the Father praying directly to God the Father. We see this pattern also in John 15, 16. Just look over there with me. John 15, verse 16. Jesus says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So, so here, here's, it's clearer than what verse 13 says back in chapter 14. We're asking God the Father in the name of God the Son. But notice that back in John 14, verse 14, now we're asking Jesus in his own name. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So either is, uh, we can ask God the Father in Jesus' name or we can ask Jesus himself in Jesus' name. In one sense, we'd say he who prays to the Father is ultimately praying to the Son because God the Father and God the Son are one. That's, of course, true. That's the Trinity, three persons in one God. Therefore, both prayer to God the Son and God the Father is perfectly acceptable. In your prayer life, you can, you can pray to God the Father or pray to God the Son. I think that's clear here. But normally the pattern in Scripture is praying to God the Father. I mean, that's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. He says, pray then in this way, and then address the Father. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. But it also seems appropriate that occasionally we would offer up prayers directly to Christ, praying to God the Son. We see St Stephen doing this in Acts chapter 7. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So the normal pattern in Scripture is to pray to God the Father, but it's also acceptable to pray to God the Son. I would also add that I believe it's also acceptable to pray to God the Holy Spirit on occasion. But I'll save that for another day. Getting back to the topic at hand, returning to John 14, verses 13 and 14, we are encouraged to ask either God the Father or God the Son in the name of Jesus. And if we do... Jesus promises to answer it. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. These answered prayer, 
These answered prayer requests is, that, is what Jesus promises to do. He promises to answer our prayers if we ask this way. And so these, these answered prayer requests are really the greater works of verse 12. See how these two verses are connected, or these three verses. The answered prayer requests are the greater works of chapter 12. Do you see that? The greater works in verse 12 are only accomplished through the prayers of verses 13 and 14. Jesus carries out those greater works in response to our prayers. And not surprisingly, it's, it's ultimately Jesus, not, who, not us, who performs the work. Although Jesus said in verse 12, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. It's, we know it's ultimately Jesus working through us who does the work. So we, of course, can take no credit. But it's interesting here to just the, the track, the, the working of works in this passage. In verse 10, the Father is at work in Christ's works. In verse 12, the believer accomplishes works like Christ's works and even greater works. And then in verse 13, we see that Christ is actually the one doing the work in the believer's workings. And when Christ does so, it brings glory back to God the Father. That's the end of verse 13, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I mean, I can hardly track with this. The Father is working through God the Son. God the Son is working through us. And as we've already seen, the Holy Spirit is uniquely empowering our works. And then this all brings glory back to God the Father, which has been Jesus' goal all along in the book of John, to bring glory to God. And maybe the best part about all of this is that we're just caught right up in the middle of it. God doing works through us, Jesus doing works through us, the Holy Spirit empowering our works. We're caught up in the divine work of the triune God. And, and we have to remember the context of these words. These works are not just simply good deeds, like kind acts. They are, super, they are not either supernatural, miraculous healings, as if we lived in Creflo Dollar's world where we're walking around raising dead people. It's, it's not that. No, the greater works are works of directing people towards Jesus. The greater works are pointing people in the direction of Christ by telling them the gospel. It's clearly and powerfully pointing people to Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is proclaiming the gospel to lost sinners and watching and waiting as the Holy Spirit occasionally takes our words and impresses them upon people's hearts. It's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit recreating and transforming dead, stony hearts who were rebelling against God to be broken, repentant believers who now love Christ. These are the greater works that Jesus promises to perform if we ask him. This is all accomplished through our prayers. Even as I was reflecting on these verses the last couple nights, it, it occurred to me here that Perhaps the indefinite pronouns in verses 13 and 14 might send our uh, minds in the wrong direction. And I know I just dropped a big word there, indefinite pronouns. Well, wh what are those? Uh, I, by the way, I don't suspect that any of you would know what an indefinite pronoun is. Uh, perhaps some of you do. I don't think I normally would. But anyway, in verse 13, the indefinite pronoun is whatever. And, and in verse 14, the, the other indefinite pronoun is anything. You see those there? Whatever, anything. When our English ears hear those words, whatever and anything, we immediately think the scope of this promise is just like exceedingly broad. 
It's like, whatever you ask in my name, that I'll do. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I think that's how we often read these words. And if it is acceptable to translate these pronouns as whatever or anything, but it may be misleading. It would be equally true to the language to render these verses in a different way. Let me, let me back up to verse 12 and read them to you again in a different way. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And that which you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me something in my name, I will do it. At least in my ear, that sort of limits the context to the passage. It's not just this open free-for-all. It's not, it's not Santa's wish list here. There's a very specific context of the greater evangelistic works that the disciples would carry out. And we take part in this divine work of God through prayer. Prayer is really our part in the greater works that Jesus' disciples perform in the church age. Again, according to the flow of this passage, the greater works of verse 12 come about as a result of our prayers in Jesus' name. But this leads to a very important question, and the question that's probably already been on your mind. What does it exactly mean to pray in Jesus' name? What does that three, those three little words, that little phrase, in my name, mean? How are we to understand that? Think about this terminology, this language in the Bible, in my name. In the Old Testament, prophets prophesied in the name of Yahweh. They also, false prophets spoke in Yahweh's name. Additionally, there is, there is much that's done in the name of Jesus in the New Testament. The apostles preached the gospel in the name of Jesus in the book of Acts. The apostles exhorted the church in the name of Jesus. Consider 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, where Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he uses that phrase. We command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, he says there. So the, the, the apostles exhorted or taught in the name of Jesus. And the apostles even did miracles in the name of Jesus. For example, Paul casted out a demon in Acts chapter 16 in Jesus' name. So to an evil spirit possessing a young girl, Paul, Paul cried out, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. See how he's using that language, in the name of. Furthermore, Christians are commanded to baptize and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We are to be baptized in the name of Jesus or in the name of the triune God. In Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, we see that the church gathers in the name of Jesus. And so considering all these things, we think about what does it mean to do something or to pray in Jesus' name? I would have to say it has to do something, something with Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. And I would say the authority that Jesus has earned through his death and resurrection. We baptize in the authority given to us by Jesus. We, we gather on the Lord's day in Jesus' authority. But this phrase, in the name of Jesus, also seems to encompass more than mere authority. For example, in Ephesians 5, we find that we're to give thanks in the name of Jesus. We're giving thanks in his name. So we give thanks to God the Father because of all that God the Son has done for us. We give thanks to God the Father because who God the Son is. And so 
In the Bible, a person's name is often really tantamount or equal with who he is. The name represents their character, their being, their essence, who they are. So the name reveals who a person is. So prayers in Jesus' name are prayers that are offered in thorough accord with all that Jesus' name stands for. They are prayers offered with a right theology of Christ. To pray in Jesus' name insists that you have a right theology of Christ. They are prayers that are offered from the believing person who recognizes that Jesus is the only way to God. They're prayers that are in thorough agreement with all who Jesus is. Therefore, a prayer in Jesus' name is a prayer that expresses faith in Jesus' authority or his accomplished works. It also expresses faith in Jesus' person and then finally expresses faith in his will. In his will. You ask, well, where'd that will part come from? Well, turn with me over to the book of 1 John. 1 John, towards the, the end of our New Testament, after the book of Hebrews, and then James, first and second and third Peter, and then first John. Look at a key cross-reference here. First John chapter five, verse 14. Important verse on prayer. There the apostle John wrote, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we've asked from him. So this is the confidence that we have before God in prayer, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we think about this in relation to John 14, 14, what we've just been thinking about. And notice here the key to answered prayer is praying according to the Father's will. That means praying according to what the Father desires. Praying towards what God wants and not what we want. Uh, therefore, if we pull this all together, if I were to say, what does it mean to pray something in Jesus' name? I'd say it like this. A prayer in Jesus' name is a prayer that expresses faith in Jesus' work, person, and will. Work, person, and will. That's the best way I could sum it up in my mind. It's a prayer that understands what Jesus has accomplished. It's a prayer that understands who Jesus is, and it's a prayer that understands what his will is. And this, of course, informs us that to pray in Jesus' name does not mean to s simply place a three-word tagline at the end of our prayers as if these words are somehow the open sesame to answered prayers. And that's not how it works. These words are not like a mysterious formula or like a magical incantation that we just use to sanctify our prayers. Which brings me to the question, well then should we close our prayers this way? Which I will admit is my common practice in saying something like, in the name of Jesus we pray. Should, should we do that? And my answer is, it is permissible, but, nef but definitely not required. It is permissible because we, if we understand what the phrase means, and, and if we're praying in accord with Jesus' work, his person, and his will, then it's completely fine if we understand what it means. In that case, it might be a helpful reminder to, towards us when we close our prayers that way. It may just serve as a good reminder, letting that short little phrase just remember that we're, we're believing in who Christ is, his person, his accomplished work, and his will. We're trying to line up with his will for our life. If we're using it that way, great. But when I say it's definitely not required, consider this. 
In Matthew 6, Jesus gave his disciples a model prayer. He said, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What is notably missing from this example prayer given to us by Jesus is, often, is obviously the closing in Jesus' name. It's, it's not there. And nor could I find a single example in the New Testament of any prayer being closed in the name, in the name of Jesus or something similar. And I think that's instructive to me and honestly making me rethink my own practice. It's my opinion that it's always best if our practice matches our theology. For this reason, for example, I don't like to tell my children when I'm leaving home on a weekday morning, I don't like to tell them, I'm headed to the church. I often slip and do say that, but I don't like to say that to them because that's not true. I'm heading to this building, but this building's not the church. You, when we're gathered, that's the church, but so I don't like to use the terminology, I'm headed to the church, so I try and catch myself there because I know that our terminology, the way we talk, influences our theology, and our theology influences the way we live and think. So it's best if our speech, if our language can match our theology because it influences how we live. And so since, so since when Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it, and he did not mean to just have a special phrase to tack onto the end of our prayers, that was not his intention, then it's probably best if we do not use it in that way. Instead, we ought to truly pray in Jesus' name, praying according to his work, according to his purpose, or according to his person and his will. And I trust that's how we typically pray. And if we pray this way, we know that he will answer because he's promised to in this passage. And I think that's what we really need to come away with from this passage. After wrestling through all the difficult theological weeds of this passage, we need to see that we have a great promise from Christ here. A great promise. is a promise that pertains to what we might call intercessory prayer. Praying for the salvation of others praying that the gospel would go forth, praying that your neighbor would become a believer in Jesus Christ, praying that you'd have the opportunity to proclaim Christ to them. That's the idea here. That's the context of this promise, praying that more and more people would enter the kingdom of God through faith and repentance. So as Christians, when we pray to God the Father through faith in God the Son, God the Son promises to work. We would have to acknowledge that there's many good reasons that the Lord may choose not to answer our prayers. James 4, as we read earlier this morning, says we often don't have our prayers answered because we pray with lustful motives, lusting after what we want and not what God wants, which we'd have to say is not praying in Jesus' name anyway. There's many reasons that the Lord may choose to say no or wait or delay the answer of our prayers, but this is a promise. It's a promise that should empower and embolden all of our evangelistic efforts. Remember the context here. It's the disciples will do greater works because, God go, because Jesus goes to the Father. And because he goes to the Father, he's sending the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit just empowered, electrified the preaching of the gospel of the early church. 
So the context here is Jesus' promise to answer our prayers that are in accord with the Great Commission, the, the mission that he's given us. These are missional, evangelistic prayers. Prayers that cry out to God to save sinners, to cause people to be born again. If we want to see souls rescued from the power of the evil one, we must be people of prayer. We must pray. We must pray in Jesus' name. The, the key to our evangelistic success as a church is prayer. If we want to see people come to Christ, if we want to be faithful to the Great Commission, we have to be people of prayer. In his book, Quiet Talks on Prayer, Samuel Gordon wrote this, and I've changed it slightly, but he says this, the real victory in all Christian evangelism is won in secret beforehand by prayer. The real victory in all Christian evangelism is won in secret beforehand by prayer. And he went on to add, prayer strikes the winning blow. Evangelism is simply picking up the pieces. I like that. Prayer strikes the winning blow. Evangelism is just picking up the pieces. Think of it this way. God, Ephesians 2.10 tells God has put works out there for us to, to walk into. And those works are already supported by prayer. Prayers that go before them. And so church family, we must pray. We must ramp up our prayer life. You must pray. I must pray. We must be devoted to prayer. We, mu we must let this text stimulate our prayer lives, encourage us, motivate us to prayer, and then give us direction into doing it. Praying evangelistically, praying intercessory prayers for the salvation of our friends, our family, our kindred, our young ones, whoever the Lord puts in our lives. Let's be people of prayer. So let's commit to doing this today and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. I thank you for this difficult text, but yet the beautiful promise that we have here. Lord, we pray that we would be people of prayer, that that would be something that just marks us. Lord, we know it takes hard work, and we know we have much room to grow, but Lord, I pray that you'd take our feeble efforts and transform them, and so that we grow and grow in our ability to pray. Lord, bring people to our minds who you want us to pray for. Pray for their salvation. And bring people to our minds who you want us to pray for so that they would be more bold in their evangelism. Lord, I pray that we would be a praying church. I pray that we'd have praying households. I pray that we'd be praying fathers and mothers, modeling prayer to our children. May we be a rich people of prayer who are committed to crying out, to God in the, in the name of the Son. Lord, would this be true of us? And Father, even now, I just pray for any who are here today who do not know Christ. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that from just something we've said or sung or prayed, that you would reveal to them their need for Christ and that they would come and be born again. Lord, please save sinners. And I pray that this week you'd give us opportunities to go out and proclaim Christ. Help us to be ready and willing and fearing you above any man. Give us opportunities to proclaim Christ. And so we pray this for your glory. Amen. Well, it's the first...